0: Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Asen Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic that Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at PCSBNetwork.com today.
1: The Esoteric Book Club is brought to you thanks to the support of the members of the Esoteric Archive, specifically Grand Inquisitor Annie Kay, Grand Inquisitor Samantha, and Soul Rising Studios. Your support helps pay server cost, purchase reading materials, and helps me appease the bees. They're buzzing. They're always buzzing. If you too would like to support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now, let's get weird. Hmm. Welcome to the Esoteric Footnotes welcome back goblins tonight i have a special guest who i'm kind of ashamed that i have not had on here yet is (laughs) irene glass the author of the black feather mystery school the magpie trainings this is really embarrassing because this is a book that i recommend easily in my top five books if not higher and yet i haven't talked to you yet so welcome to the show <laughs>
2: thank you so much for having me but i feel like since you did such a wonderful deep dive of the book that i, I can understand how that happened you know what i mean i was sort of on the show just in text form <laughs>
1: <laughs> and we just kept talking back and forth throughout messenger and everything and it never occurred to me it was like wait I, I never asked you on the show officially so here we are
2: Thank you so much for having me. And it's been an exciting week in paganism.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, that's one way to put it, yes. <laughs> that actually is why I brought you on the show tonight in general. It's not just to talk about your authorship, your magical practices, but also your pagan clergy I don't know would we say that's a profession or a
2: Yes, I I basically call myself a pagan religious professional um, which is interestingly a reference that was first applied to me by some of the unitarian universalist ministers I serve with I think because their world is more structured, it's useful to have references like that, of like, this is a religious professional, this is what they do. So I think it's actually a very good way to describe my function, though, in that primarily what I do is clergy work. So that means the creation and running of liturgy and teaching classes, of course, but also a lot of pastoral counseling, a lot of interfaith work, um, a fair bit of chaplaincy. So I'm, I'm basically full time pagan clergy. It's a very interesting field.
1: So let's back up. And how did you get started in that?
2: I fell backwards into, (laughs) I think what I sometimes tell people is that I have cleverly monetized a compulsive behavior. So (laughs) I'm a helper human. And as I've aged, I've discovered that there are just people who are like that. So like when I was, a teenager, I volunteered at a YMCA day camp as a counselor in training and then as a counselor. And in my little social group in high school, I was the den mother slash ringleader. And then I joined the Marine Corps out of high school because it seemed to me at age 17 with a whole lot of attitude that that was a good way to help as well. And it is a form of service. And then while I was in, I was the one who would get the 2 a.m. knock on the door if another Marine was having like a real big meltdown in the middle of the night, I would be the one that they would come to help to have them to have someone talk him down, you know. Mm. So this is just a a pattern of behavior. And, uh, you know, got out of the military, kept being a, a wild pagan. I was out while I was enlisted. I was one of the first to go through with Wicca on my dog tags. And I began to get involved in the Maryland and Virginia pagan community, started teaching. And I've, This is just what I love to do. I like to help. I like to lead rituals. I love to teach. I love seeing the light of magic come on inside of other people. And my helper human behavior in the earlier part of my career manifested in becoming a yoga teacher. So I was a yoga teacher for about eight or nine years. I still teach a little bit now. I managed a yoga studio for a while, and then I got hurt. I developed piriformis syndrome, which took me off the mat for three months, and that was my main source of income. I was teaching nine to 15 classes a week, and suddenly I had no income. That's not a field that has any sort of job security, just in case anyone's playing along at home about that. So fortunately, I had a good friend who basically was like, you know, your brand effectively as a witch is very strong. Have you considered just going full time? And he we sat down and we figured out sort of different income streams of the different things that I do and how to make them make a little bit of money. And five years later, here we are. This is my full time job. Uh, It's been an absolutely incredible journey.
1: You are a very good example of do the work first, (laughs) and then the titles and everything else will come afterwards.
2: Yes, it's true. That's accurate. And what's funny about that is that I think a lot of the really good leaders in the pagan community are ones that have just been quietly sort of doing the work and sort of falling up if that makes sense, where we yeah. suddenly are in charge of, OK, well, now I'm in charge of this group. Now I'm in charge of two groups. Now I'm in charge of a festival. And it's all a very <laughs> natural progression because most of us are in service to something higher. You know, like for me, I have there's a Unitarian Universalist phrase, the, the beloved community. We talk about building the beloved community. And that's a thing that I very much believe in. It's part of why I I serve and guide and shape and, and give my life and energy to this, because I, I really do think that the possibility of a better world involves progressive religion and it involves more holistic and more connected belief systems like paganism and its its whole wonderful family of, of different systems i think that there's there's a real power in community and I think on a personal level, I always seek connection, right? I'm one of those kids that never fit in anywhere else. So, you know, I I build the family that I wish I had. And so being in service to this dream, I've just sort of accidentally (laughs) found myself, (laughs) you know, like, well, I'll just volunteer at this event and help carry tables. And then five years later, you're in charge of it. And that's just kind of what happens (laughs) if you just show up and chop wood and carry water.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's definitely an element of uh, fortunate, unusual circumstances leading up to that, too.
2: Yes, and also a collection of luck, no question. I'm really fortunate. The region I live in is great. Um, I'm in Western Maryland for whatever reason. It's, I think, a confluence of the different cities that are nearby and being in Maryland, which is a fairly blue state, but also on the western end of it, which is more which is less built up than as we Mm -hmm. start getting more toward like DC and Baltimore. We just have a really amazing location for a pagan community. The scene out here is huge and multifaceted and amazing. And it is such a blessing. And honestly, it's just a big chunk of luck because that's not something you can just generate. Not every region is like this.
1: I know what you're talking about. I've visited Western Maryland a few times. And once you cross that state line, there's nothing there yeah <laughs> it's just farmland and you see a house every mile or so right so it's exactly. it's very remote in places
2: yes it absolutely is um especially you know you get out toward like cumberland and places like that and it is it's quite rural indeed we're uh right at the i guess you could call it like the transition point you know or <laughs> maybe half an hour from the west virginia border so it's it's a nice mix we have access to the mountains we have some beautiful rural areas and also we have you know frederick which is a fairly large city and and several others that are within an hour's drive so it's just it's a really lucky spot in terms of the confluence of energies that come together here
1: so it's a bit of a drive but one of these days i actually need to come out to one of your festivals Oh, i
2: love that. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Frederick Pagan Pride Day is a good one. That one's a lot of fun.
1: I was going to try to make that last one, but then I forget what happened, but there was another event I got to and I just crashed afterwards.
2: Yeah, no worries. That would also be a lot like more than one of those things in a row.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, how far into your your clerical work did you get involved with the Universalist Unitarians?
2: So they were a, a funny little I let's call it a side quest. Um so in 2008 I went to Twilight Covenant which is an absolutely fucking amazing pagan retreat in Massachusetts every year. It is not a festival, there are no bands, there are no vendors, but it is 4 days of ritual and focused work. So if you want to go somewhere and really work on your shit, it's gorgeous, it's on top of a mountain in the Berkshires in October so it's glorious Ooh. like it's beautiful and it's oh gosh it's in its 30th year or so they really know what they're doing it's just incredible and my first year there I was with a group, because you separate into smaller groups called clans, and they have a specific magical focus, that worked with labyrinths. And I'd never done a lot of oh. labyrinth work before, right? And the the whole premise with the group in the description of it was that it would get you unstuck, and I was feeling really stuck at that point in time. And I went and did four days of labyrinth rituals and magic, and it was like, this is this is fucking amazing. I have have like a labyrinth (laughs) tattoo on my shoulder at this point in time. Like, And so I, you know, I say, yep, exactly. They're incredible. (laughs) So I came back home and was like, I have to find one of these near me. And I pulled up the worldwide labyrinth locator. My congregation, the Unitarian Universalist uh, congregation of Frederick has an outdoor labyrinth. Very nice one. And that's how I got involved. I showed up. Um, Labyrinths are interesting in that without a human advocate, they tend to just become disused, disrepaired, and they they often disappear as a result. So the one at the Frederick UU is bricks in grass. And when I arrived at the grounds, I couldn't find it at first because it was very overgrown. So I did my usual thing, right? I was joking about chopping wood and carrying <laughs> water, right? So I walked into the front office and I had hot pink hair at the time. And, you know, <laughs> there was a lovely little lady working at the front desk. And I said, hi, my name's Irene. Would it be okay if I cleaned off your labyrinth so I could use it? And I'm pretty sure she thought I'd dropped out of like an alien spaceship or something, but she was <laughs> like, sure, that'd be fine. <laughs> so I started... You know, I cleared off the labyrinth. The first time I did it, I used a hand trowel, and it took me three Ooh. days on my hands and knees. I've since learned some much better tricks for, like, how to do that faster with more power tools. And now, of course, there are volunteers that help, so it's not just me. Um, but, you know, I started walking the labyrinth there, and then my nature is to share the really cool stuff I find. So then I was like, would it be okay if I did a full moon labyrinth walk out here in the evening on full moon nights? Sure, Absolutely. I eventually went to a Sunday service specifically because a close friend wanted to, they had a young child who was beginning to experience other kids talking about Sunday school. We wanted to find something equivalent, but one that wouldn't indoctrinate the kid. So I was like, well, I've been associated with this group for like, Jason, it was a year before I went to a Sunday service. Because as a pagan, I had a really hard time wrapping my head around the idea that this could be at all ever an okay place for somebody like me.
1: That's understandable. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, and, and it's it's one of those things where I always try to I try to explain it to my UU brethren that like most of us have, not just mild trauma around Christianity. So we've like a lot. <laughs> it's been bad. So um, I went to Sunday service. I really enjoyed it, and I discovered that the community's wonderful. You know, a lot of the, the people in the community who are older than I am, they remind me of my parents. You know, they're wonderful hippies and tree huggers and vegetarians and free thinkers and artists and creatives of all kinds. And I loved meeting other adults like me and I loved being around younger people that were, you know, it was just that moment of like, oh, wow, I'd suddenly remembered what it was that was nice about congregations because I'd forgotten that amidst all the poison, you know? But also, there's this lovely feeling of, oh, right. There's, there are people like me. Um, so it was just, it was wonderful. So I got involved. And one of the funny things that the UUs will do is that if you show up and you get involved, they go, oh, we noticed that you like doing this. Would you also like to do this? <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> we've seen you offering labyrinth pra- programming. Would you like to join the cups board? now that you're on the cups board, how about running for office? Like, and then you find yourself <laughs> on like six committees and, you know, a decade later you've become a commissioned lay minister. And that's what happened to me. They ate me just like slowly. <laughs> it's like
1: being, Little at a time. It's like the
2: blob, you know, like it just yeah. comes in. And <laughs> it's the but most in a good loving. Way. Yeah, exactly. It's the most loving amoeba. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's how it happened. There's, you know, it, it It's just been a slow and steady sort of journey into ever greater forms of community and service and and sort of running that on multiple paths. So, you know, obviously all of my pagan spirituality and work and, you know, having been a, a teacher and a leader and an organizer in that community for years and years and years, but then also becoming Unitarian Universalist and becoming part of that world, those things really worked very well together.
1: What was the hardest part of this transition?
2: Well, I got divorced in the middle of it. (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah, that would do it.
2: (laughs) That was probably pretty big. (laughs) No, I mean, I think it's that thing, right? As we become more ourselves, if we are misaligned with the partner that we are with, (laughs) that becomes more and more grating over time.
1: (laughs) It's similar to what everyone says about Moldavite. (laughs) It's going to find what doesn't work and it's going to kick it out of your life. Exactly.
2: It's an accelerant. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think um, it's really mostly been a joy. There have been the occasional interpersonal issues, but it's the sort of thing that you encounter anytime in community work. And I think that that's one of those pieces that... It's useful to bear in mind is that when you work in community and with community, you're going to find not only your edges, but other people's. And learning how to negotiate those places are part of, that's part of what makes a strong community worker and a strong community is the ability to sit with discomfort and examine which pieces are mine and which are yours. And what do we need to do to make sure that we can communicate around this? Like one of the things I love about UUs is they're what is known as a covenant in community, which means they make agreements about how to be with each other. So it isn't necessarily like, you know, Irene is wrong and Jason is right. Instead, it's going to be so when Irene and Jason are in community together, this is how they're going to speak to each other. And it's a different way of approaching balancing personalities. And I think it's a really beautiful one, simply because it allows everyone to be very human. And it also makes sure that there are standards in place in terms of how we interact with each other.
1: You used a phrase that really sticks out. That was how to sit in discomfort. Yeah, that is definitely something that isn't practiced often anymore.
2: No, Uh, I I actually wrote recently about this simply because, you know, I don't want to rag on the modern life too much. Right. I feel like everybody does that. um, And there are many good things about our world and our culture and the technology and the fact that we all live when probably we wouldn't have you know i always think about the fact that like i'm 43 now i probably wouldn't have made this fucking far a few hundred years ago like there are many good things and also one of the problems with being at least here in the united states a culture where we are not necessarily raised in community anymore and we are a culture where there isn't really good modeling of either listening or conflict resolution means that we tend to just avoid conflict And that's not going to work forever. It it doesn't. It causes relationships to come apart. So unless we learn to actually just be uncomfortable and find some ease and patience with the experience, you know, we don't grow. We don't move forward. Your discomfort tends to be where a lot of really useful information is. And our discomfort teaches us so many things. You know, there are so many times when I'm with somebody and I'm feeling uncomfortable that I... You know, you take a moment and go, okay, why is this feeling arising? And you realize that like, oh, this is a thread from my childhood. This reminds me of conflict Mm -hmm. with my mother, or I'm feeling ashamed because I think that my lifestyle isn't something that this person would necessarily agree with or support. Like you begin to realize that there's more in your discomfort it's it's not just one emotion, right? It's a whole series of things, and then when we can sit in discomfort together and even talk about it and just point at that, it, it's so important. Um, there's a wonderful program that uh, that a lot of Unitarian Universalist congregations do called Beloved Conversations, and it's all about having uncomfortable conversations about white supremacy, largely white people talking to each other, so that people of color aren't doing the emotional labor. They shouldn't yeah. be but we have a lot of work to do and we need to have those uncomfortable conversations and and i think it's some of this like head on authenticity with accountability with you know a whole lot of ethics behind it work that unitarian universalists
1: do that i love about them
2: so much you know it's part of what draws me to the community
1: it's emotional self policing
2: yes yeah it is and it's deliberate growth i i, mm-hmm. I really do think that when we when we really do, when we expose ourselves to and do not run from challenges and discomfort it ultimately helps us grow i'm a much more patient and compassionate person largely because of some of the uncomfortable things that i've been through and sitting with my own discomfort has been good for me you know, looking in the mirror is good for us. You know, I don't think we should do it all the time, right? Like, everybody would be a bunch <laughs> of miserable bastards if all we do is plumb the shadow of our souls. But this is work that needs to be done at times.
1: And it has the added benefit that it it builds empathy, but also it teaches you how to communicate.
2: Yes. And, and communicate across different situations. Like, one of the things that is always really tragic to me, and, and one of the reasons I talk about grief and death uh, a fair bit in my own work, is that I do chaplaincy work, which means I accompany people on that last walk. And it's so lonely when someone's dying, Jason. Most Mm -hmm. of the time everyone leaves because they're uncomfortable even though the person who's dying is the exact same person they've known their entire friendship and relationship that person's not different and what's happening to them is normal and natural and it sucks right but this is this is a normal part of life but people just they can't handle the discomfort of their own feelings around death and they leave you know they leave yeah. people to this hard experience this sad experience and they leave them to do it alone and it's, oh God, it sucks. It's so fucking tragic, you know? And it's it's always a privilege to be allowed into that space, to be able to sit and have those conversations. But I think the thing that always just breaks my heart about it is where is everyone, you know? And then afterwards, once the person passes, huge fucking memorial service, they were loved, but people couldn't yeah. handle their own discomfort. And so they abandoned their friend and just, oh, it's crushing. It's
1: crushing. It's, it's easier to show your love to other community members rather than the person who is dying.
2: That's which is really
1: sad because those are that that's the person who needs to hear it.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah. When my friend Kat was dying um, for people who couldn't come, we had them, her, uh, her widow and I had people post online their memories and love. And we would sit there and just read them to her off of our phones. You know, it's, people need to hear this and and i can't emphasize enough that you know whoever is dying is still your friend right so mm-hmm. smuggle contraband in <laughs> like
0: oh, absolutely. make them
2: laugh we were for you know i'm definitely guilty of like wandering in with a flask tucked into a pocket somewhere like let your friends still be themselves but but being present is so important and and i think that This is another example of also why clergy work is needed in the pagan community, simply because there are roles now that in the beginning, I don't think we needed as much, simply because, you know, like in the 70s, when we were first launching out, everybody was young. (laughs) The first generation of pagans hadn't begun to die off yet. It's different now. We're multi-generational. You know, there's a need for chaplaincy and for people to be able to negotiate these spaces and, and hold families as they're going through hard things.
1: And that's a type of training that we don't really have access to outside of some place like the Universalist Unitarians.
2: That's right. Cherry Hill Seminary. Yeah, no, it's true. There's not much. Um, I had to go. Th- part of why I've gone through Unitarian Universalist training is that I did not find pagan training to be adequate or Some Mm -hmm. that is available wasn't accessible to me because of cost barriers. Um, So Cherry Hill Seminary offers some really good pastoral counseling certificate courses. They have, you know, uh, I think even a a degree program at this point in time for people who wish to serve as clergy. But all of that is fairly new. Um, I got started in 1995. So for a long time, there just wasn't much you know, we had like Wicca Covens and by Judy Harrow and a handful of books that give you just a touch of stuff around how to, how to listen well, how to manage a community. But the truth is that a lot of the skills that are needed for good clergy work are skills. They're things that are learned. I'm not a Mm -hmm. natural listener. That's a skill set that I developed through practice. You know, I'm, I'm a musician and a performer. I like to teach, I like to speak, obviously. There's a fucking need for attention buried deep in there somewhere and
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> but
2: most of what I do as clergy of course is listen and ask questions. And I had to learn how to do that. But those skills are, they're learnable, they're teachable, and many other traditions of the world have information that's useful on it. Um, mm-hmm. The Unitarian Universalist world around, they call it spiritual companioning, is really wonderful. And it's the idea of walking with someone as they explore their own spirituality. And I bring a lot of that to my practice as a clergy person. And I just... I wish we taught these skills sooner. I wish they were part of every tradition. Um, It seems like even some of our longer standing Wiccan traditions don't have a lot for clergy work. Like they have, you know, a couple of modules on pastoral counseling, but that's one of those things that can take up an entire degree program's worth of effort, um, particularly when it comes to understanding the limitations of it. So, you know, I just... There's more work to do here. I I think of it as like the new frontier in paganism is how can we make good, safe, strong, ethical, self-aware leaders? Because I think that's what's next.
1: Mm -hmm. Recently, I read the pagan book of living and dying, which is a fantastic book. But I think it came out in the 90s. It's dated. Yes, it's dated. (laughs) We don't have an updated version that helps people understand what is going on in the world today.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, and I I remember just a few years ago when Mortellus' Do I Have to Wear Black came out, I was so mm. happy about that book. I was like, I have been waiting for this for 20 years. Specifically, you know, the, all of the information around death and end of life is wonderful, but the back of the book. The whole second half are rituals for end-of-life ceremonies for different mm. kinds of pagans. I would have killed to have had that because I've done an unfortunate number of funerals and not always traditions of paganism that I'm part of. I am heathen by faith. That is my reference point, right? So then stepping in and doing a more sort of eclectic pagan one or a Celtic-style pagan one, that's that's not my background, Having a blueprint to follow would have been incredible, but we're only just starting to build these, these resources now, and I'm so grateful to Mortellus for putting the book together. It's amazing. Um, we need more like that, you know, more, more ways for our clergy to be able to, to function well and to
1: serve. I feel like a book of rituals in general of different layouts of different formats, really just a generic template would be very useful, too. There's a couple out there, but they're mostly just examples of rituals that the author created, which is great, but it doesn't tell you how to create them or how to run them.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I think some of that is also just the there are, of course, differences in tradition and that makes things challenging sometimes. But I feel like there isn't enough discussion at this point in time of the nuts and bolts of what it is to run events because that Mm -hmm. that's not romantic right it's not mystical (laughs) it's making sure that you have everything on your list it's carrying tables it's understanding you know what is a truly accessible space what is not like that's one of the things that i'm sort of trying to work on in my home community and in communities i visit pagans have a tendency to want to stand in circles which is not accessible to all bodies
0: (laughs) like
2: there's a lot of shit we do (laughs) I'm like, well, I got a lot to unpack here. (laughs) And that's one of those areas. And some of that practicality, I think, just doesn't get talked about because it's just not as much fun to write about. And I do sometimes, I think there's a difference between ritualists who create good rituals and community leaders who are very good at organizing and setting up rituals, right? Like those are not Mm -hmm. necessarily the same skill sets. So I think some of our books of rituals are ritualists and a, the way a community person would write a ritual book is very different, you know, and then it would start with, here's your supply list. You're going to yeah. need a crew of six guys. Like, and it's just a very different approach.
1: And it could be the same person, but good Lord, it's exhausting if it is.
2: Yes. Uh, one thing that I am so grateful for, I've, I've served. So I am the president of Frederick cups, the Frederick covenant of Unitarian Universalist Pagans. So it's the cups chapter at our, our congregation. And, I think I'm in my 12th or 13th year there at this point. And for probably the first five or six years, it was mostly just me like, offering things and and leading and having occasional help and now of course a decade later there's a whole wonderful team of other leaders and people who like to assist we have a one of our core values is service so it's needed that the community sort of self-selects for people who like to be in community and like to do the work Mm -hmm. um And it's amazing to have a whole team of people who help, which means that now I can sometimes just sit and develop liturgy. But we also have specific folks within the community who are really good at ritual writing, even if they're not necessarily as good at being, as my mother would say, the one with the clipboard and the whistle (laughs) and making it all happen. (laughs) And it's it's such a blessing to then to have that group of people. But a lot of folks are just, they're just doing it on their own. So they are, as you say, doing the the whole job themselves, ritual creation, but also all of the organization and logistics around it. And it's, it's tough. I would say that it's one of the arguments for, you know, for some form of structure within at least larger pagan gatherings it's tough Mm -hmm. because i i I like the fact that we're decentralized i think it prevents abuse of power in many ways i i like that we don't that we don't put too much weight even in the words of very well known pagans and witches we are you know (laughs) what it was the phrase that was used to describe us an irreligious disorganization i like that i love (laughs) that about us Um and also it does mean that that, you know, people who are in service, who are serving the community, don't have a lot of support. It's normal no. for our priests and priestesses and priestesses to burn out. And that sucks. The good people leave. I've watched so many do it over the last twenty years. And part of why I haven't is, you know, knockwood, have not yet at this point, is I think because I'm involved with the UU congregation and I have a team of volunteers that can help. And it's a rare blessing, but it's, you know, it's a really solid argument for like clergy needs support too. Like this this is a team effort. Spirituality is a team, team sport. Yeah.
1: You have a good support structure that isn't just, Hey, uh, collecting donations so that you can continue to do your job. It's, it's more than that. That is very much part of it, but there's a lot of background stuff that needs to be done.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think anyone who's run any event understands, you know, it's our rituals uh, generally draw on the lower end 75 people and on the upper end like 150 to 200 the infrastructure for a ritual of that size is significant particularly mm-hmm. if you want it to be you know one that has a lot of smells and bells like our Sowen ritual <laughs> is fairly elaborate cuz it should be it's sound it should be glorious and tragic and full of grief and beauty you know so if that's the case it takes a lot of people to make that happen <laughs>
1: And it's hard to predict, like, how do you how do you adjust the logistics for something that's like, oh, it could be 75, it could be 200. We don't know. Yes. There's a, a big balancing issue in between there.
2: Well, and when I'm teaching ritual construction, I talk a lot about that, and that a ritual for up to 10 people is very different than a ritual for 11 to 30 people is very different than a ritual for 30 to 100 people. Those are not the same rituals, and the more people you have the simpler everything has to become. So a group of 10, you can have a really elaborate 12 phase descent of Inanna crazy bullshit (laughs) sort of, you know, it can be very elaborate. When I had a working partner and I I did for years, we would do absolutely ridiculous multi-level rituals (laughs) because you can, right? If there's only like two or three or four or even up to 10 people, it can be really, really elaborate. The more people you add, the simpler it has to become, and it needs to be understandable on a on a ritual theater sort of a scale. So not theatrical necessarily, but symbolically rich so that mm-hmm. it translates well across a large crowd.
1: Especially if you want every member of the crowd to participate in some That's way.
2: That's right. Yes. And I uh, personally detest rituals where we are standing or sitting and watching someone else have a ritual unacceptable like ritual should be something that triggers a transcendental experience in my personal estimation like this is an opportunity to connect and everybody present should have that opportunity and the whole point of the ritual is to create the right container for that transcendental moment so yeah the math changes and the structure changes a lot
1: well if you're just standing there watching someone else have a ritual that's no different than a sermon
2: yeah, and it's god-awful. I still remember. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> hopefully no one's going to get angry at me for this. So 20 years ago-ish, there was a full moon on Halloween night, and I was with a working group at the time. I was fairly fresh back from the military. and We decided to go to Salem for Halloween for the full moon, right? And Salem for Halloween is fun. It's madness, but it's fun. But I, we were so excited they were going to do a ritual out on Gallows Hill, like 600 witches, and it was terrible it was so bad it was so bad there was a great spiral dance that started it in but then it really was 600 witches watching five people have a ritual Mm. it was awful (laughs) and that's always been one of my reference points of like nope i'm not doing that that's that's not a good thing to do (laughs)
1: I've had a lot of people tell me about Salem at Halloween and they're like, oh, it's so much fun and it's so busy and there's so many people. I'm like, really? That's that, That's fun? Like, what did you do? <laughs> I, oh, I yes. watched this thing and I did saw someone do this thing. And it's like, well, okay. What did you do? Yes. You know, you, yeah. you went there for a reason not to watch. That's, that's why you're there.
2: Yeah. I... When I was in um, Revel Moon, and I think a little bit when I was in Cassandra Syndrome, we used to go up and play, uh, which are both pagan bands that are no longer. We would go play the Salem, Massachusetts, uh, the Eastern Mass Pagan Pride Day, um, and it was just starting to get into the Halloween season. And I actually really enjoyed that more because a lot of the fun things that come into Salem during the autumn were present, but it wasn't the full madness mm. of Halloween in Salem, you know, which I which I have experienced once and. A little bit like uh, New Orleans should be experienced. It's incredible. (laughs) And also, it is specific to taste. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love spectacle, so I was completely down for it. (laughs) But if you're going for a deep spiritual experience, yeah, it probably won't do that for you. But you will have a blast, you know, drinking blueberry beer. It's going to be fun. (laughs)
1: Blueberry beer? That sounds it's amazing.
2: So good. So I go up to Massachusetts a few times a year and uh, one of my friends lives up there, of course. And so I bring um, uh, Old Bay seasoned, we call them Krabby Chips down here in Maryland. <laughs> I bring bags of those and he gets me blueberry beer. And So we run contraband back and forth up and down the coast. Blueberry beer is really good though.
1: <laughs> okay. So here's the deal. I will bring you West Virginia pepperoni rolls in exchange for oh, some of those chips.
2: Absolutely. Done. I will trade. <laughs> Let's do it.
1: <laughs> so clearly you've been here before and you know what I'm talking about.
2: Yes, I do. And good pepperoni. They've, the sheets in my area have just started carrying pepperoni oh, rolls. They're not yes. acceptable. Like they're not the really good ones like out y'all's way, but they're, they're okay. And they still kind of scratch the itch a little.
1: I wonder if you get the same ones that we do. Because the best ones I found recently have been at Sheets.
2: Really, but it may not be okay. the same brand, probably not the same brand. See, this is the thing,
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> no, regional differences are funny.
1: Uh, well, let's uh talk about a topic that is in the news recently. Sure, it involves an individual who we are not going to give airtime to, but we will talk about what was said, and that is basically the miscategorization of pagans in america uh long story short basically this individual wrote an article in a very large newspaper which surprisingly published it yeah and he compared people like donald trump and elon musk to modern pagans saying that pagans are beholden and and worship power for power's sake
2: yeah the Conversation that sprang up after it because, of course, immediately the pagan community was like, I'm sorry, what the fuck? Was a whole lot of backpedaling on the author's part of like, I'm not talking about modern pagans. He was using the word pagan to mean anything that he disliked, apparently, which is all the ills of modern society and lay them at our feet. The thing is, the author in question knows better, you know, religious leader working at Harvard like has been a part of the religious community for years. The word pagan has evolved over the last 75 years. It means something else now. And our community already is subject to discrimination. And you and I, and people like us, of course, can look at that article and go, oh, this is what is happening. But somebody else will just, (laughs) just glom onto his definition. Like, oh, pagans, they worship power, you know? They're like Elon yeah. Musk. <laughs> like, guys, we are the opposite. Um, <laughs> you know, this idea that we're not community minded at all. And it was just also lazy scholarship. Like, you know, he oh, talked about it was the lazy paganism writing subject. too. It was terrible. Yeah, just one of those ones where I cannot believe it saw the light of day. I think that's one of the big shockers. It's just who let this get published? It's trash. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been an interesting couple of weeks in the community since that was published, what I am interested in seeing is what everyone does about it in terms of real world changes. It's really easy to you know, fire off an angry email or comment on a Facebook post, but I think one thing that is abundantly clear is that we still need to be working on bridge building outside our communities. Many of us who do work in interfaith, and I'm going to include myself here, we're working in interfaith with other groups who want to work with interfaith communities. There is a certain level of preaching to the choir and that most of the communities I interact with are progressive in some way, right? They're faith communities that don't think that other faiths are of the devil or whatever, right? They are willing to interact. We need to think about how can we start opening conversation with communities that are not interested. In interfaith work or who who do still believe some of the terrible things about us that are said, you know i'm interested to see what actually comes of it in terms of really reaching out i'm part of the troth which is a a large um heathen organization. It's the the national one it's wonderful inclusive fantastic group and there was some conversation on that page about like hey we should probably start doing open what is heathenry things at libraries again mm. and this is the kind of thing i'm talking about is like how how can we open the conversation in more places and with more people i think all of us are very concerned about the tone that the culture of the united states has taken and man there was one take about that article that i thought was really interesting um, by Casimira who said something along the lines of like if if this rabbi needed to throw me and mine under a bus, what's he so afraid of, you know, that yeah. that he needed to throw the pagans under a bus? And that's a really good question. It's a concern, you know, like if we're starting to castigate and demonize the minority groups within our culture, what is coming that's so scary? And, and that I think is of deep concern and we're sitting with and we're thinking about what we want to do about it. You know, the other side of that, along with opening conversation, of course, is strengthening our own communities. I engage in a form of ritual work called Save, which is uh, Norse transpossessory Divination. And any time I've gone to the gods in that ritual, I always ask about, you know, how can I best protect and serve my community? And most of the messaging over the last 10 years has been. Create a strong arc. Basically, create a strong community. Get people connected. Get them talking to each other. Get resources moving back and forth. And I'm not naturally pessimistic, but I always do worry if there isn't a reason for all of that. You know, and this most recent article being another one of those like, "God damn, what the fuck is coming?"
1: Yeah, and it's it's concerning when you have a like you said a minority group throwing another minority group under the bus exactly it makes That's you wonder why it makes you wonder what they're scared of yes something we may not see
2: yeah exactly the, the tone if you start to really take the article apart is very fearful and i don't know if the author is just afraid of change of the fact that society is evolving and, and moving past his very narrow view of what is a good and a right life or if there's something else that he's picking up that maybe we're not um if there's something that he's reading in the wind that's really frightening him. Uh, you know, our Jewish brethren certainly are experiencing a whole lot of anti Semitism right now. So maybe that fed into it. Either way, it's not a good sign.
1: The article was so. I don't want to say that it was pointed, but it was very direct in places. It almost makes me wonder if pagan wasn't a term that was used as an allegory for something else. I know it definitely did not sit well with pagans, but I feel like (laughs) you could almost replace the word pagan in there with fascism and it would be surprisingly accurate.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, and I think that that's also a a good illustration of the fact that this article would never have been published if if what had been used in place of pagan was any other belief system. So if you put Mm -hmm. Baptists in there, that would never have seen the light of day never yeah you know some of why it was allowed to happen in the first place is because we are a minority religion and only sort of right like that's the crazy thing everybody knows a pagan now like we're <laughs> yeah. the largest growing religions in the in the world but because we are decentralized because there isn't a whole lot of power slinging on a, a high level because we're not sponsoring politicians or whatever we can still get thrown under the bus this way
1: yeah that's one thing that monotheistic religions are really good at that we probably should be taking a cue from is they're very good at being loud and saying hey look at me yes <laughs> they tend to do it at unflattering flattering times but they're also very good what about when they're doing charity work you know they say yes. hey here's something we're doing for the community for people who are not of our faith but just get that word out there that, you know, they're not the only ones doing this.
2: Yeah, no, I, I'm always, I, so I run a, a Pagan Pride Day, and I've always thought it was really wonderful that one of the important things that Pagan Pride Day does is some sort of a charity thing. So like mine does a food drive, and then we do also a drive for donations for a local animal shelter. And I think it's really important that that we do support our local community, regardless of what faith path they follow, simply because, you know, as one of the organizers, I get the cool feeling when we pull up with a giant van full of donations and drop them off, and I get to say, these are from Frederick Pagan Pride Day, Mm -hmm. because that's not normally what they hear, right? Like, this, this very real work of caring for community, it is something that does help protect you if things get ugly, you know?
1: You probably get the follow-up question, this comes from where?
2: Yes, What exactly. is Pagan Pride
1: Day, you know? <laughs> yep. And then you get that opportunity <laughs> because they're already interested. They're listening.
2: That's right. Yeah, I think it's really, a, it's, it's vital you know. And I would say that outreach festivals are are one of those things that I would like to see come back a little bit more. You know, the plague kind of killed off well, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't call it the plague. The COVID-19 pandemic <laughs> killed off a lot of the the community building that was going on. Some things have returned, some things have recovered. Not everything has though. Um, I would love to see a few more pagan prides come up. My region used to have 3. We have 1 now, just mine. <laughs> so, like I, there is a need for this especially since the pagan community continues to grow um i think part of why my own cups chapter is so large is there are just so many people that are looking for a way to plug in and because we are decentralized because we often don't have buildings that we're working out of it can be hard to find other pagans anywhere other than online and the online community is you know a blessing and a challenge in (laughs) in its way
1: (laughs) The lack of centralized building is definitely a big hindrance for a lot of people, especially locally, man. I tried to put something together with friends, and that's what we all came down to. We had plenty of ideas, plenty of motivation, but it's like, okay, well, I live in a one-bedroom apartment. Where are we going to hold this? Exactly. Exactly.
2: Well, and I think that's one of the things that I always, that comes up sometimes. So uh, the Cups chapter, of course, does fairly large events at the congregation. And one of the things that gets commented on is how nice we always leave the building. And some of that, of course, is the pagan virtue of treating the land well and cleaning up after ourselves. But the other piece is that having a building is a privilege and Mm -hmm. we are more than happy to help take care of it and to help pay for it. Like, we don't normally get to do this. And it's also part of why I think if, if you are at all open to Unitarian Universalism as a philosophy, becoming involved with the UU congregation is an amazing way to be able to serve, you know, sort of two communities at the same time. Um, UUs and pagans are a natural match. Uh, We tend to share a lot of the same values and priorities, so it ends up being a really just a beautiful connection point. Um, But, you know, one of the things that that we really struggle with is location. Um and many times even if we don't become part of a UU congregation, they rent their buildings at quite reasonable rates. So there if you if there is one in the region, I encourage people like, go talk to your local UU, see if they'll let you rent the their hall out. Like that's probably gonna get you the space you need. And from people that whose ethics you would actually agree with, you know?
1: That that's important. Very, very important. Yes,
2: very important uh, so many so.
1: times the people that have physical locations don't necessarily have the best morals or ethics.
2: No, no. And I think that there's a good deal to be said for for wanting a spiritual activity to occur in a space where spiritual activities fit well. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: You know, rituals in conference rooms and libraries and fire halls are doable. And also, if you have access to a space that is regularly used for worship, it feels different and it's a good kind of a feeling.
1: Yeah. You and uh John Beckett both speak very highly of the the UU congregations.
2: Yes. Yes, John and I have that in common. They're really wonderful. Um UUism comes out of progressive Christianity but is is so far out of progressive Christianity that I think most other Christians would not consider them Christian. Um, Yu-yuism is characterized by values and sacred sources. So the inherent worth and dignity of every person, each individual's search for truth and meaning and spiritual connection. And the upshot of this, of course, is that you can be sitting for a Sunday service next to an atheist, next to a Buddhist, next to a Muslim person, next to a pagan. We're all there. And it's wonderful because we really can share values with someone whose beliefs are quite different than ours. And of course, what's funny about that is a lot of pagans do that within the pagan community. Like most of us have friends that are, you know, a Hellenic and a Dianic and a Celtic reconstructionist and an eclectic pagan, and we all get along and go out for drinks together, and it's great. The UUs are just like that. So it's, it's part of why it's a very natural fit. Many of the exact same things that govern how they interact with each other are the exact same things that govern how we interact with each other. So it's, uh, it's a very nice mix.
1: I have to look into that a little bit more for the local area.
2: Yeah, I mean, you
1: know, hopefully you've got one. It's been a while since I looked, but last time I looked, the UU congregation was actually renting out another church.
2: (laughs) Yep, that's real, too.
1: So, yeah. (laughs) I would be like subletting, I guess, almost. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) No, and I think the other cool thing, of course, is just being around other people who are You know, it's that thing when you're part of a larger community, your efforts can go further Mm -hmm. because you're not the only one doing the thing. So like, let's say I go out individually for a stream cleanup, I will do some work. But if I go out with a team of 20 and do a stream cleanup, holy crap, you know, the same amount of effort on my part with this group of people creates so much more impact. And this is the beautiful thing about being like part of a uh, The sorry, a beautiful thing about being part of a congregation is that your own efforts just go so much further you know, mm-hmm. so much more is possible.
1: Well, <laughs> where <laughs> should we take this conversation now?
2: I, don't know. I hadn't intended to make like an advertisement for you, but I guess that's just what happened. So, uh,
1: <laughs> I mean, no, that's okay. That's, that's great. It, it's, I don't think it's a group that many people necessarily know about Yeah, because again, they don't really advertise loudly. They
2: do not no well you know it's the the same sort of prohibitions we have against proselytizing they do too there's a running joke that it's like the best kept secret
0: <laughs> <You
2: know? laughs> and sort of involuntary like one of my favorite advertising campaigns they did for a while was that you might be a you you and not know it and it's true like a lot of people are <laughs> like do you think people are entitled to you know to believe whatever they want and search for truth and meaning in their own way like yeah definitely well that's you you think fucking really oh okay (laughs) (laughs) no i don't know let me think i'm trying to think if there's anything really good to say about if there's anything to say about clergy work within paganism that hasn't come up already we need more of us you know always the community is growing one of the things that i've observed in many communities is we struggle with having programming for all ages It's rare to find a community that has children's programming, programming for families. Uh, So much of pagan ritual was designed with adults in mind. But the sad Mm -hmm. truth is that if we don't allow our children to be part of our world, we will not continue you know, being, being raised pagan should include being part of the pagan community. And there are some places that do it well, you know, Earth Spirit up north in Massachusetts springs to mind. They uh, are very good at like Rites of Spring and some of their larger gatherings of always having children's programming, but it, it's rare, it's rare and it's needed. We need more people who know how to spiritual companion, who can sit with other people when they're struggling and just listen and hold space and embody the best of our faith tradition in order to support them on their journey. You know, we need more ritual leaders. We need more teachers. We're growing. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of need out there. <laughs> we're growing and, and we're in a really challenging cultural time, you know? So yeah there's a need a great need for bridge builders and for strong hands.
1: <laughs> I know the children's programming has been challenging in our area. And I and by our area I mean mostly West Virginia because I know at least one person who is willing to teach children paganism and magic and wicca and they have a full religious program that they can do but they have those kids their parents have to sign waivers and have to sign release forms because they've had fallout from other religious organizations saying oh my indoctrination so they have to cover their own asses saying hey no we have permission from the parents right this is all above board
2: Nope, that's real. And, you know, I think some of it is also scaling paganism and finding really good ways to bring children into ritual spaces. I know that one of the things that we always think about is, how do we build a ritual? And by we, I mean, sort of the Frederick Cups ritual team, how do we build a ritual where a five year old can get something out of it? And a 75 year old can as well? Like, mm. how do we build that space? And it's, it's a unique form of ritual structure when we're when we're creating something like that. Um, I'd also love to just see us get to this point where like, you know how in most sort of, I guess let's just use the term Christian, but like Christian services, if a baby starts wailing, the parents will just quietly take the kid and walk out and it's totally normal we need to get to that like and just allow that to be normal like it you know maybe this is another one of those like learn to be a little uncomfortable sometimes like yes babies cry it's what they do children sometimes get overstimulated and need to be hauled out of the room but as long as parents are doing their thing with you know with keeping an eye on their kids and meeting their kids' needs. We need to support the parents in doing that and, and let them be in, in space with us. You know, the worst thing that's going to happen is everyone gets distracted for like 30 seconds. And then if y'all are any fucking good, you'll be fine moving on afterwards. Like we just need to, to make this a little bit more accessible for families. And I'm speaking that as a child-free person, like I don't have kids and I know this is the thing that's needed. (laughs)
1: It's a unique opportunity to give a bridge to both the parents and the kids, because obviously the kids are, with the exception of babies, because they don't know any better, but like young children, they're getting bored. They don't want to sit there and listen to a sermon, but the parents, they go there for a reason. They're getting something out of this. So we need to incorporate both things into the program. And that is a challenge.
2: Yeah. And part of how kids learn to be in ritual space is by being in ritual space and sometimes being carried out of it. Right, like mm-hmm. this is how kid, you know, I rem- I grew up Presbyterian, right? So I learned as a child, you know, when you're really little, of course, you go to like religious education, like you, you know, you stay just for the beginning of service, they tell you a story, and then they throw you out. <laughs>
0: like, yeah,
1: <laughs> time to go to the basement, go to exactly. the Bible study, you go to yeah. the side
2: building, and yes. But as you get older, you're expected to sit through services, and we learn this through repetition, through being present for it. We learn what is expected, what is the behavior. We need to be comfortable passing our culture are on the same way you know the kids aren't just gonna suddenly turn 18 and bam now they're gonna be okay being in ritual fucking no you gotta train that in like there has to be some sort of an on ramp for that
1: and it has to be something that they want to be there for
2: yeah
1: otherwise we just run into the same issue as other mainstream religions
2: that's right well and that is i think one other point that i would bring up is It is very important for people who are in leadership as pagans to make sure that they have some mentors who are younger than they are, you know, some influential members of their community, some people that they listen to who are younger. I'm 43 now, and some of the really wonderful, bright, shining stars in my community are in their early 20s, and I pay a lot of attention to what they say because they know what's coming next. And some of the influential members of my community are in their late 70s and early 80s, and I listen to a lot to what they say. Because they have institutional memory, they were here the whole time. We need to be able to hold all of that. Basically, we need mm-hmm. to be very good listeners. But there's a tendency to just sort of write off whatever the next generation down is doing, you know. So we're just going to ignore the, you know, the millennials, and we're going to ignore, you know, everything that comes after that. No, 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 no. That's not how we continue. You got to pay attention and and listen. You know, understand that our forms of communication and our ritual forms. Sometimes they have to evolve. Um, One of the members of my community is, uh, with the permission of her mother, is there. She's 16 years old and has wonderful ideas and ways of describing things that it wouldn't have occurred to me, and sometimes points things out about ritual structure that might be unwelcoming that I never thought of. And this is part of why it's so important to have this this multi-generational approach to witchcraft.
1: Something I love about working with the youth in really any situation is when they come up with ideas and you can say, wait, we used to do that. Why don't we do that anymore? (laughs) Is that something you would want to do? Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. Let's do it. Let's bring it back.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You have the structure already there.
2: Yeah. Well, and one of the beautiful things about pagan practice is it is flexible. We can change it. You know, we're not wedded to a book or a particular oh gosh, a particular way of doing things, there's room to change and grow. And that's really when a religion is a, a beautiful thing is when it can continue to adapt and, and grow to meet the needs of the, the new people who are coming to it. And you know, I, we're really lucky in that way. Um, a lot of the other major faith traditions in the world and, and not just Christianity, most of them are struggling with retention. They're losing people left and right because they're stuck. They, they're, they're too entrenched in the way things have always been. You know, we we are so lucky we have the ability to pivot. So it's one of those things we should definitely take advantage of.
1: They've become predictable. People who go every week, they know what they're going to get. If that's what they want. Great. If not, they get bored.
2: Well, and also just unwelcoming in a lot of ways. Um, Statistically speaking, at this point in time, I think the last thing I saw is that about one in 10 kids identify as somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum right so mm-hmm. somewhere queer gender queer gay bisexual somewhere in there most of the world religions at this point in time do not still do not welcome queer people even when we're beginning to realize that that queerness is just an inherently human thing it's part of who we are it's normal it's everywhere and it's absolutely verboten for some of the major religions so if you have at all like weird feelings about your gender or you're trying to unpack something about your sexuality walking into a lot of spaces that are strictly binary that have very strict ideas around what romantic relationships look like it's just not accessible at all
1: and and regardless of what you decide for yourself having someone who just listens that is sometimes all you need
2: yeah i love the phrase to meet people where they are
1: mm-hmm. like
2: i love that and that's i strive to do that to just just meet people where they are you know and, and allow that have the grace around wherever they happen to
1: be i feel like that's a good place to wrap up the show <laughs>
2: very cathartic right there (laughs) well thank you so much for having me jason it was really nice to sit down with you
1: well thanks for coming on the show i definitely need to have you back at some point
2: i would love that i will hopefully have more exciting things happening in the future that i can talk about
1: (laughs) well in the near future you should have a new book coming out right
2: that is the goal i'm yeah i'm at the very last bit, it's like, like, you know when you move house, it's like the last 10% of stuff that you move takes the longest (laughs) amount of time and doesn't fit in any boxes, right? So I have the full, the book, the manuscript is largely done, so I'm at the tinkering place, and the creating graphics place, and the rewriting guided meditations place, and the getting citations and making sure all of my various quotes are listed correctly in the appendix. It's that part, and that part tends to take me the longest, because I fucking hate it, and (laughs) 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 it's just... Oh, God, can I hire a personal assistant to do this part for me? The answer is no, of course. But like soon, (laughs) we'll (laughs) hand it over to my publisher soon. (laughs) And then we'll have book two.
1: (laughs) Now, what is this one going to be titled?
2: Rook. So this is the Rook training. So uh, Blackfeather Mystery School is a four level level mystery school. It's been running for five-ish years now. Uh, And it's Magpie, Rook, Crow, and Raven. So this is level two. That's the Rook level.
1: All right. So is there any chance we could possibly convince you to do a clerical book?
2: I've thought about it. It's, I think the big challenge for me is always sort of being able to fit everything I want to do into the hours of work I have available. Right. So Uh, what my, yeah, like my, what my day looks like is the morning is usually writing. Um, and that includes classes and workshops. It includes a weekly blog. It includes any sermons that I'm doing. And I do quite a few over the course of the year. It includes the books that I work on. And then the afternoon is all clients. I, I take pastoral counseling and tarot clients in the afternoon. and That's how I make ends meet. Uh, and so it means that I have a certain amount of energy, you know, to put into things. And so basically I, I can work on a book at a time. And right now it's Blackfeather. I do have basically the outline for a pagan leadership book and i think at some point in time i would love to do that because i i have a lot to say on the subject and i think that i've learned some really good lessons the hard way and unnecessarily so like i feel like if there was just a fucking manual some other people wouldn't have to repeat (laughs) this so i would love to do that and hopefully one day i will
1: (laughs) man fingers crossed i am i'm waiting for that one (laughs) Thank you. granted i'm waiting for all of your books but yeah (laughs)
2: you so much.
1: Well, where can people find you?
2: Uh, the easiest place to find me is my personal website, which is Glass Witch Cottage, and that's glass with an E. My last name is Gaelic, so there's a silent letter, but, you know, glass like a pane of glass, ewitchcottage.com, and there are links to basically everything from there. Also, my name is Irene Glass, and I am easy to find on social media. I am the only Irene Glass that I know of, so feel free to come track me down. I'm on Instagram and Facebook.
1: And I try to repost all of your blog articles and all of your your social media outreach. I try to put that on my pages as well. So if you can't track her down, look on the Esoteric Archive and chances are you'll find a link.
2: Yes, yeah. And thank you so much for helping me.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. And you can honestly, I think I sent you a link so you can just post it yourself. Awesome. Yay. Well, until next time, everybody out there listening, remember... Stay weird!
0: Hey
2: everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD, to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more hope to see you there.